across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are then, Lockdown Tuesday. What are you doing and where are you going and what will it be like this time next week? Last night, the Prime Minister, in what must be described as a very presidential performance, basically declared a national state of emergency and told everyone to stay home unless they had a very good reason not to. And good reasons not to include essential working, visiting your children, going out for food and exercising in the park, but only in groups of no more than two and only one a day. We spent a great deal of the show yesterday talking about how ludicrous it was that so many people had flocked to the beaches of this country, had flocked to the national parks of this country, uh, and were hanging around as if there was nothing wrong whatsoever. Well, all of those people who argued with me on Twitter about how I was wrong to criticise it uh, have all, I'm afraid, been proved completely and utterly wrong. The one thing that surprises me is how almost everyone has accepted that this is absolutely what we have to do. No more weddings, no more parties, no more socialising effectively for the next three months. I'm OK with that and I'd like you to be okay with it as well. This morning we will be seeking answers as ever to more of your questions. Some of you have been asking about court cases that you've been asked to attend, MOT tests and whether you can still get them, joint custody of course and exactly when the self-employed can expect to know what they will be getting in terms of financial help from the government. Uh, we will also be asking when Sadiq Khan will be sorting out the public transport in London which is reaching dangerously overcrowded proportions and whether even stricter rules could come into place. We'll be talking to former government communications specialist Lucian Hudson, now with Thinking the Unthinkable, and Shadow Business Secretary Rebecca Long-Bailey. More importantly, we need to hear from you as well, the voices of reason, the eyes and ears of the independent republic. And we'll also be asking you uh, to put out a clarion call to any NHS workers that you know, people who you may be friends with, people who you may be partnered with, people who may be relatives of yours who are working in the NHS. We will be more than happy to give them a special hello today. So if you've got somebody that you want to get a mention for, uh, please do tweet us at uh, Talk Radio at IROMG, text us at 87222 as well, uh, and call us 0344 499 1000. Starting today as well, we are doing parents and children a service. We'll begin our very own homeschooling segment. So if there's anything you want us to cover, uh, do let us know. Today, the subject of uh, interest is going to be photosynthesis and how it actually works. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So this morning we awake to headlines such as Lockdown Britain, You Must Stay at Home, says the Times, House Arrest, says the Sun, End of Freedom in the Daily Telegraph, which is perhaps a bit over the top, and the PM says, Stay at Home, this is a national emergency on the front page of The Guardian. Let's talk to Lucian Hudson, uh, who is former head of government communications, now working with Thinking the Unthinkable, and a man uh, who's put an awful lot of thought into what we should be doing and when we should be doing it. Lucian, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. You've written a very interesting blog, which I read um, last night, uh, shortly before, sort of around the time, I guess, that Boris Johnson was addressing the nation in, in what I thought was a very presidential performance, to be honest. I think we've seen very timely, decisive and potentially far-reaching action. Uh, we have to be ahead of the curve. That's the key message I think I take from what the government has to do and what it needs to communicate. We can't just respond. We need to take preemptive action. And I think we're seeing that now yeah. with uh, a qualified lockdown. What we also need to see is, I think, a global response, 
put aside Brexit, all those arguments. We need to think through what's happening to the real economy and whether the financial markets need to be closed. And I think we need to be inclusive. We can't leave anybody out here, including the freelancers, the self-employed. And, and working with Thinking the Unthinkable, particularly Nick Gowing and Chris Langdon, I think we ought to pay tribute to people who've been working for the past six years with business leaders to really get a sense that leaders, all leaders, whether they're political, whether they're business, whether they're civil society, need not just to think the unthinkable, but need to think the unpalatable and therefore embrace what the, not just the complexity, but cut through it. And I think we saw in the Prime Minister last night decisive action. And the communications, Mike, I think are being ramped up like in a way that we've never seen. We've got up to 60 million text messages coming through to, from governments today to individuals. We're seeing this new campaign, stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS. That's going live today. We're seeing that presence on television, radio and digital. I think we've seen six million views to date of gov.uk guidance. And I think about 100,000 people are now accessing it at the moment. There has been rising public concern. I've been concerned. I wrote my blog before the Prime Minister made his announcement. But equally, there's a high awareness of the measures that need to be taken and confidence in the government approach. But we have a very narrow window of opportunity. And this qualified lockdown may well not be enough if people are not cooperating. And if they're not cooperating, we need to enforce these changes. And it's not a matter of whether we're a free society or not. It's whether or not we can survive as a society, save lives and get the economy moving again. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And I think I'm, I'm quite encouraged, actually, uh, Lucien, by the majority of people in this country backing what Boris Johnson wants them to do. Most people, apart from a few idiots, basically understand that we have to do this. And it wasn't until I read your blog that I even really thought about the, the, the closure of the financial markets being something that was necessary, because it seems to me that it's crazy to keep them open open because of the damage that's being done by sort of association to pension funds, to the economy and all the rest of it. Precisely. What we're witnessing for the first time, and I don't think we've seen this before, is that those clever people who work in financial markets normally find a way in which they can find an alternative option where they can make money. But we're also witnessing people not even trusting any part of the financial system right. and taking out cash. So sadly, we can't have any profiteering. We can't have needless politicking. We can't have needless point scoring. We need to pull together. And if the financial markets are not collectively going to show that they've arrested the trend and we've reached the bottom, then I think we have no option, or certainly countries working together have no option, but to close them yeah. and say, this is damaging the real economy. Real people, real jobs are being affected simply because we've got a capitalist system that cannot cope with the changes. Exactly I right. I believe that we can adapt, but we need to take radical action. And that's why I think we need to think the unthinkable, work with leaders to do things that we have never done before, and not just go on the evidence. There's a lot said about going on the evidence. Of course that's right. That must be right. But leaders can be informed by the advice and the evidence, but they also need to act despite what they know and despite what they do not know. And I think we need to get ahead. We need to get ahead in order to get on top of this disease. Yeah. And if we do that, we may stand the chance 
of pulling through in a way that many people will be able to benefit. Because apart from the, the, the sort of unsavoury aspect of anybody trying to make money on the markets out of what is going on at the moment, because we're so far beyond that, I can't imagine anybody would want to be known for doing that. It seems to me that we are going to have to be a bit more creative, are we not, about making a construction that we can operate around once this is all over. Precisely. I think a lot of people are still what I'm calling recalibrating. They're saying a bit less of this, a bit more of that. No, we're already having to think. Anyone who runs a business at the moment, anyone who advises a business, needs to think about how we're going to have to reset. In many cases, we're going to have to reinvent ourselves. That's tough. We can't take a lot of decisions just at the moment. There's not enough information to go on. But we need to get our heads and our hearts in a position where we are thinking very differently about things. And that includes what value we put on, on who does what for the economy, particularly at a time of crisis. Yes. And do you think that means a kind of a recalibrating, if you like, of the capitalist system? Are you one of those who believes that we will end up with a more kind of socialist model? Well, I, I want to keep aside... I mean, I've always been uh, advising governments of any complexion, whether it's Blair, Brown or coalition government, I, I'm there to offer the best quality of advice. My advice at the moment is go beyond the ideology. The Chancellor was right about that. Ideology will return, I'm sure, in spades. But for now, let's just think through what will be the right thing to do in the here and now, what will be the right thing to do in a week or two weeks' time if trends do not improve. We may need to have even more drastic measures. And think through where we will be as a result of all this shaking up the economy and where, and how do we want to use our people in the most you know creative and positive way i'm seeing countless examples at the moment of experts of of people working in charities and people who, who just have any any kind of knowledge or expertise come together on social media observing the, the physical distance and yet working more closely than ever that is just wonderful to behold. And we want to encourage more of that. We want everyone to feel that even though they have to stay at home, they can contribute in a meaningful way. And the way you do that is focusing first and foremost on what it takes to make sure you're healthy and making sure what it takes for other people to be healthy. I cannot understand for one moment why people don't understand what two metres is. Mm. It's bleeding obvious to me that you need to maintain your distance, otherwise you risk other people's lives and your own. However, having said that, there are many useful things you can do by staying put if you're not one of those essential workers. Exactly right. And some people have said this morning there's a kind of a, uh, a bit of a dichotomy going on because not everybody's absolutely certain what an essential worker is. But I'm interested in what you said in your blog, that, you know, perfection is all very well. You can't get perfection. Let's not try and get it. I mean... I don't blame the government for not being absolutely decisive on a lot of things because it's very hard for them to be decisive about, you know, a moving, a moving object, I suppose, if you like, because it's like sort of nailing jelly to the wall, this thing, isn't it? But what I'm wondering about is whether they could be a bit more um, sort of definitive about who's uh, going to be getting money if you're self-employed, how that's going to work, and maybe being specific about um, who they regard as an essential worker. I think that's right. I mean, I think the two tracks here. One is to have a winning strategy, a winning formula. And I think that's still being worked out. I mean, we, what we know for sure is that we need to contain, delay, mitigate. Yeah. What we don't know yet is when, it, it, it will, when we will get any vaccines or treatments that will be able to enable us to tackle this epidemic. If we don't know that, and the government advice, the advice from the scientific 
advisory group um, on, on emergencies last Friday, I think made it very clear that we, we could be in, in a kind of lockdown for possibly a year, um, sometimes having very tight measures, sometimes relaxing them. But we need to get ourselves and steal ourselves for thinking how are we going to work through this in a way that still makes life manageable, bearable, but ultimately is about saving lives. And unless we do that, we're, this is going to get worse. So my view is that I think it will, the, the epidemic will get worse before it gets better. And we need people to support government enough in what could be even tougher measures, including on enforcement. And I think for that reason, why say the perfect is the enemy of the good? Because up to now, vaccines, I think, have operated quite rightly on the basis that need to be as close to perfect as possible before you start using them. It may be a very tough choice about whether, for instance, a vaccine, which is long in coming still, needs to be as good as it can be. And therefore, the public needs to brace itself that there are going to be some very difficult decisions. And anyone in the position of power, of influence, needs to brace themselves that some of the tough decisions they have to take will not be popular. But that's not a reason not to do the right thing in the right way. Absolutely right. A lot of people asking certain questions this morning, which we're trying to get answers for as well. It looks as though they have relaxed the uh, situation of people who share custody of children, that they'll be able to move freely uh, to see those children. Also, people, a lot of people this morning asking me about MOTs, and I'm telling them that the government advice seems to be if your car needs an MOT, go and get it done. If you get stopped by someone, uh, you explain why you need the car for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd err on the side of essential rather than nice to have. So I think there's a fundamental question whether one orders online mm. really just to, you know, keep alive, keep healthy, support someone who's vulnerable versus doing something just to, to make yourself happy. Now, this is difficult because we need to kind of have light and shade in our lives, uh, particularly at a time of, of, of crisis. Mm. We need to be... We need to keep our sanity. It's, you know, that go, it almost goes without saying, but you need to say it because unless we're healthy in mind, we're not going to be able to do very much more. Having said that, I think people did take, in my view, liberties over the weekend. And that kind of behaviour, which is not heeding government advice to keep a distance uh, and to travel only if it's essential, if it's not heeded, then the government, I don't think, has to apologise. It, it should encourage, as it is doing, but it might also need to enforce. And we need to steel ourselves as a society to be really clear where our priorities are. And I think it's about saving lives, saving society, making sure we stay safe, we stay secure, and we protect the NHS from being in, in, to, to be able to cope with what will be, sadly, many more cases mm. to deal with. Well, interestingly, I'm seeing a, a stat this morning from WHO that says 85% of the cases in the last 24 hours have basically been in the US and Europe, where in South Korea, the reported number of new cases is at its lowest ever. So it's obviously moving across the globe, isn't it? It is. I mean, the other thing I'd caution is that, you know, understandably, governments have, think, have thought that they're all in a different position, different context, but the epidemic respects no borders, no boundaries. That's why I keep coming back to it's great that this government is so decisive as, uh, as of last night in taking the measures it has. And it's also trying to strike a balance, trying to fully realise the impact. This is very responsible. 
very responsible. But equally, we're all in this together. And it may be that we, ha we just have to work much more closely with other governments so we get a global response, one that acknowledges that the epidemic is spreading at different, a, different, a, a, a different speed, a different pace, but also each country has a particular set of uh, uh, needs that it needs to get right. I think fundamentally, though, that all the, economy needs to, all the economies need to pull through together on this. And whether you call it you know, a more active state, a more socialist state, I think is, by, is, is something just sort of put to one side. I'm looking at what is necessary for this government or any government to be successful. And in my view, that is, is trying to get build support, port, uh, build support across government, business, civil society, and all our citizens to all push in the same direction and accept that in order to get on top of the epidemic, we need to get ahead. And that's my experience of foot and mouth way back in 2001, yeah. which in a way in, re, re, resulted in all contingency plans in every country being rewritten. And we rewrote all the advice, the communications advice on communicating risk after that. And what we, what we, I think people like me drew the conclusion that unless you're preemptive and you operate at scale, you can always scale down, but you need to scale up in order to get ahead. You need to speed up, even though you may slow down. All those things that normally you would not do day in, day out, in a crisis, you have to do the precise opposite. Because unless you do that, you won't arrest the crisis, you won't reverse the trend, and you won't get back to what I believe will be a new normal. We'll never get back to the old normal, but there's every chance now we can build together a new normal, which I hope, in my case, will be a more compassionate, more inclusive society, one that's more appreciative of different people doing really essential work mm. for this society. Yes, I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Lucian, thank you very much indeed. Lucian Hudson, former head of government communications, now working with Thinking the Unthinkable. And let's face it, uh, we do have to think the unthinkable. We do have to look at what is going on. We do have to regroup and we do have to, at some point, work out um, that the world has changed and the world will change, but it doesn't have to be for the worse. It can actually be for the better. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, we're going to talk to Rebecca Long-Bailey, Shadow Business Secretary and Labour Leadership Candidate. We spoke to her just before the show started and I asked her uh, how she feels living through uh, such a weird time because it is a very weird time, isn't it? It is. I don't think any of us uh, thought we'd face a crisis such as this. But uh, I think now that the main priority of government has to be public safety and protecting people and ensuring they can work from their homes. Um, and certainly the action that was taken by the Prime Minister last night was right in terms of the guidance for self-isolation. But what needs to happen today, and this has to happen very, very urgently, is a number of things. Firstly, there's been confusion in the last 24 hours about what essential work actually is. And any non-essential work shouldn't be taking place today. We shouldn't be forcing workers to go out to workplaces that aren't providing a function that's necessary to keep the country going in this crisis, to provide us with the essential um, goods that we need in our homes, such as food, providing essential public services and information 
uh, right across the United Kingdom. And there has been confusion. We heard reports this morning about Sports Direct opening their shops and declaring to their staff that they were an essential service, and they certainly aren't. Um, and we need the government to take clear action on this, to be yeah. clear with businesses about whether they should be asking their employees to come in today. Yeah, Sports Direct appear to have uh, got themselves in a right old knot over this because they've now come out with a statement saying they're not going to open. So I think it might be a bit of a sort of Mike Ashley <clears throat> going off the end of the pier at some point or other and deciding that's what he wanted to do. But I don't think they're doing that. But presumably for people who are told to come to work and, and without doing so they won't be paid, they would consider themselves to be essential workers, wouldn't they? Well, that's right, and that's why it shouldn't be up to bad bosses to decide who comes in and who doesn't. There needs to be clear direction from government about what an essential function actually is. Now, if you're providing food services, you're a supermarket, then yes, that would be an essential function. We'd expect the government to uh, ensure that they're provided with protective um, clothing and equipment to deliver that service. If you're a worker in critical manufacturing, for example, and you're manufacturing protective equipment or ventilators, yes, that would be an essential function. If it's water, waste and energy to keep our homes going in this critical time, then yes, that would be an essential function. But there are a number of businesses right across the UK who aren't providing what would ordinarily be classed as an essential function. And many of their workers are coming to work today. The construction industry is one example of that. Warehousing for services that aren't related to food or essential items is another area. And that's very, very worrying. And further to that, even more worrying is the issue of self-employed people and how they'll be protected in this crisis. We saw support last week for directly employed workers. So the government has agreed to underwrite 80% of the wages of those workforces. But there hasn't been anything outlined of a similar nature for self-employed people. And they'll be worried about whether they can make ends meet or not, whether they have to make that choice between putting their health at risk or not having an income. And that shouldn't happen. So urgently today, we need to see action from the Chancellor to provide that direct financial support to the self-employed. Yeah, we've had a lot of uh, people calling our show to ask us about that uh, in the last couple of days. And, and we've we've told them basically that we believe Rishi Sunak is about to make a statement about that. Uh, it may come later on today. You've issued a, uh, a paper, have you not, called Wages, Welfare and Wellbeing, in which you kind of point to possibly a, a, a move similar to what's happened in New Zealand or possibly Denmark. Um, but you haven't actually put a figure on it. Do you think that, because some people think that self-employed people should not get 80% of, of whatever it is that they would normally make because they pay less tax? No, as everybody deserves an income that they can live on. And at the moment, what the self-employed have been offered is a slight increase due to changing thresholds in universal credit to a statutory sick pay of about £94 a week. Now, yeah. that is not enough to live on. Right. Um, and that's why there are two issues. Firstly, that our statutory sick pay here in the UK isn't enough. It's way behind other European countries. But secondly, if we're offering that to the self-employed, it just isn't good enough at a time when the government has agreed to underwrite the wages of other workforces and they're directly supporting businesses. Now, there's also a wider issue uh, that we need clarification from the Chancellor on about wider business support. So this goes outside the scope of the self-employed and directly to small and medium-sized businesses. I know in the last 24 hours that a number of the businesses that I know in my constituency have been contacting retail banks, trying to get business interruption loans and been told by the banks that they don't know anything about the scheme or they haven't been provided with enough information from government to be able to roll it out. There are a number of small businesses who they just can't afford to get themselves into additional debt. 
and the grants that have been provided by government only relate to certain sectors and you have to meet certain business rate thresholds to be able to get that direct support. We want the Chancellor to extend the grants that are available to, to SMEs at this time, particularly those who today will have decided to shut down their business for the foreseeable future. Right. One of the other issues that's come up as well, Rebecca, is about visitation rights for spouses and, and people who've, who've got, got divorced or who share custody of children. People are not sure about whether they can still do the sharing of custody, whether they can go to get their kids and bring them to their place for the weekend or whether that's somehow now not allowed. I think that needs to be clarified today by government. I had read um, earlier this morning via Twitter that the government was clarifying that it potentially was going to be okay yeah. uh, in the same way that you're able to go and, and care for a vulnerable relative or provide them with you know, essential items. So, so it just needs to be clarified and very publicly so that people's concerns are allayed today. Okay, and as far as uh, government goes and the House of Commons goes, um, I'm assuming there will be the final sort of uh, Prime Minister's questions of the of the session tomorrow. Um, you then go away for the Easter break. Is, is there any likelihood of you coming back anytime soon, like before uh, September? Well, we haven't received any guidance at all. At the moment, what we're trying to do, and this was applied to all political parties, is we're trying to make sure that the number of people who are going into Parliament at the moment is dramatically reduced. So you only go in if you're responding to a particular debate rather than everybody normally going in as it would be. Now, after Easter, we don't know what's going to happen. But what we've said, certainly from the opposition, is that we need to see put into place as urgently as possible a system of being able to work remotely if we can't access Parliament. Because it's a question not just about MPs travelling up and down you know, to their mm. constituency and potentially spreading the virus, but it's also about putting the staff within Parliament at risk, the catering staff, the security staff, the police, and a whole range of services that have to be in effect when MPs are sitting within Parliament. But what we can't see happen is for democracy to shut down. We've got to be in a position where, whether we're working from home or we find another method of doing this, we're able to scrutinise the activities of the government. We're able to feed in our suggestions so that we can work collaboratively throughout this crisis, as we all want to do across Parliament. And we have to make sure that the other machinery of government continues to operate. So, for example, securing of trade deals as we uh, leave the European Union. That still needs to take place. And we still need to be in a position to scrutinise what the government is doing. OK. And, and what, finally, what about the Labour Party leadership race? Is that still kind of going on, tra on track? Are you going to be the next leader of the Labour Party? Well, well it's, still, it's still happening. Um, but obviously more important things that have occurred and, and everybody's focusing their attention on trying to, to assist the government with this crisis. And that's the right thing to do at this time. And... Um, Certainly, whoever wins the leadership, uh, all of us within the shadow cabinet, myself included, if I don't you know, win, we'll all be there to support the incoming leader, to make sure that they're in a position to support the government and provide guidance and advice on how to protect our communities. And have you got, have you got a date? Because, I mean, everyone's telling me that Jeremy Corbyn should be self-isolating because he's a vulnerable person. Well, Jeremy and other members of the Shadow Cabinet are you know, taking their responsibility very seriously. We're here to, to protect our communities and to make sure that every single person uh, has their needs met. And that's our number one priority at this time. And we're working around the clock to make sure that government is pushed to, to make the right decisions and implement the right type of action to be able to facilitate that. And what about the king, finally? You know, your son, the man who runs your uh, household. What do, you do? <laughs> what, do you, uh, what, do you, what do you say to him when he says, I want to go out and play? 
Well, we were lucky. We got a trampoline a couple of years ago, so uh, so every time he gets a little bit kind of uh, restless, we send him out to the trampoline for a bit. But so far, so good on the homeschooling. We did the you know the Joe Wicks PE lesson yes. yesterday at nine o'clock, uh, and that was quite good. I was shattered after doing it, but my little boy seemed to enjoy okay. it. Okay, so we'll, well do quite a lot of that. And... Well, we're doing a homeschooling session every single day at twelve thirty. So tune into that. Oh, that sounds good. So yeah. We'll... Well, great stuff. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks a lot. Rebecca Long-Bailey there, the uh, shadow uh, business secretary, of course, in the Labour Party. Still waiting to find out if she's going to be running the Labour Party, but uh, by all intents and purposes, it's probably going to be Keir Starmer. But I'm not quite sure uh, what the date timeline for that is, because she didn't really say. We've got lots of you who want to talk to us. Let's go to the phones now. Sue uh, is in the new forest. Hi, Sue. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. What, what do you want to tell me? Yes, that's fine. I just wanted to say, well, first of all, I'm 73, so I'm having to self-isolate. Right. So we're not falling out with each other too much. <laughs> um, but it was interesting this morning, you got binoculars out in the garden and we looked up at the sky and there was a police helicopter up there for over half an hour. Oh, really? Um, just circling over where we live in the forest and then over a bit towards Southampton. So... They're either trying to check out if anybody's sort of out smuggling toilet rolls or right. whether they're just actually... A lot of it might be to look at the traffic on the motorway because yes. a lot of people are trying to escape down to these sort of places. Um, yes, they may be looking at the beaches perhaps as well. I mean, it's a bit cold yet for the beach, but people were all over the beaches at the weekend. That's right. Well, in the forest as well, of course, a lot of people come down here to camp, but the campsites are all closed. Yeah. But, of course, people have got second homes down here, you know, quite a lot of famous people around here. Sure. Um, and they're going to try and get away from, up, um, you know, up in the smoke. But um, it was strange to see them up there, you know. But, right, it, it is, yeah. Funnily, I mean, how are, you, how are you coping with getting food and stuff like that? Well, we've got a son who lives in Lindhurst, which is just the next village, and okay. a daughter who lives over at High, which isn't far away. So my son dropped us some stuff off this morning and very carefully wiped it all with medicated tissues and everything. Oh, that's good. And we've, we've got a dog. If anybody wants to rent our dog, we've got a Jack Russell. So we're allowed out with her twice a day. I think my husband takes her out in the morning and I can take her out in the afternoon. Okay. So. You've got to have a reason for, get, for getting out there, you know. And um, Having a dog to walk, I think, is one, though, as long as you're not going out in, in groups of more than two. That's right. That's yeah. right. As long as you're with your members of... It sounds very grand, doesn't it, when Boris said members of your household? Yes. But, um, I'll tell you something. I really, I really, really feel this. I'm so glad Boris is at the helm there mm. because... Any of those others. Can you imagine Corbyn trying to... Oh, my him? God. Oh, no. I really can't. And the other thing is, he, you know, he's a very educated man. I know people think he's a bit of a buffoon, but that's just the front. But I think he's really in charge of all of this. And he is inspiring everyone to yes. sort of try and, you know... I thought last night he was fantastic. I mean, he really looked he very was. presidential, I thought. He really was. And we were saying this morning, my son's saying to me, he said, life's never going to be the same, Mum, is it? Not no. really. And I said, well... I think hopefully all humanity will probably start to recognise what's really important, you mm. know, this feeling for each other. Just one little thing I must mention is uh, people who go to meetings, whether it's um, all kinds of addictions, AA, all this sort of thing, right. obviously it's a problem at the moment and a lot of them are on, you know, online on various things like right. Zoom. But just give a thought out to those people who are probably at home and haven't got access to that or haven't got access to sort of getting to the helpline right. to um, talk to people, 
you know, spare a thought for those people. Yes, it's a very, it's a great thought, Sue. Thank you so much for making it, and and and, and congratulations for for being so such a stalwart, to be honest, because that's what many people are having to do. She's not able to go out. She's seventy three. Her husband is with her. Uh, they've got a dog, and so you know, well, the world is is a is a is a fine old place uh, when you have the sense and the common sense that Sue just uh, exhibited there. And if you are struggling because you are a member of one of those. Um, uh, addiction type groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, let us know what you're feeling like and if you need to call us, please do. Let's talk to Chris, who's in Selsey. Hi, Chris. Yeah, hi, hey. Mike. Hi. I mean, some, 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 nobody's explained this to me. I mean, some works at the airport. Okay, we're all locked up in our houses yeah. with restrictions. Why are flights landing at major airports from Tehran, from China, and all these other yeah. hotspots where they're... What is that all about? It doesn't make I mean, much sense to me, but I guess... Somebody the re- needs to explain this, Mike. This is ridiculous. Well, Simon Calder's explanation of it was basically that once you've already got the virus in uh, whichever country you're in, it makes no sense to stop flights because there are people who need to get back from these places. There are people still stuck in various points around the world. Um, I understand that, that many other countries have decided to stop all flights. And, you know, I don't, I, I personally am with you. I don't understand why they would do it. But I guess they feel it's more important to keep you indoors because you're then more protected rather than stopping people from flying in. Yeah, well, the repatriation thing I get. I mean, my wife made, out, made it out of Faro and that was like the last days of yeah. Rome. Yeah, right. And, and she managed to get back. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know too many people have been to Tehran for a holiday recently. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, you know where most of them, they're coming in, they're going to stay here if right. they get here. Right, possibly, and, uh, possibly no, so. I, I think this really needs an explanation, and that is a big, big issue. Well, I think certainly what they should be doing, which I said from the beginning, and yet I was told by an expert it wasn't necessary, they should at least be testing people as they come through the airport, and apparently they're not even doing that. It is nuts. It's crazy. That just doesn't make sense. You know, we're prisoners in our homes, and they're all just flying in. Most of them will probably have it or be escaping from it. Yeah. I know. It doesn't make any sense to me either, Chris. I'll, I'll, see, I'll, I'll keep asking the question and we'll try and put it to somebody who's in government. But it seems to me that at the moment there's a lot more planes flying around the world than you, uh, than you would think. Let's talk to Nicola, who's in Northumberland. Hello, Nicola. Hello there. How are you? Yes, I'm OK, thank you. How are you getting on? Yeah, not too bad, to be honest with you. I've got three kids and okay. they're all being homeschooled now. One, well, my eldest is actually meant to be doing a GCSE this year, so that's all a bit of a... Bit of a problem. Yeah, they're a um, bit confused. I've got one like that, and and you know, I think I think they're struggling a bit to understand what's going on. I know it is hard. It, yeah. you know, they work so hard for, you know, the the final furlong kind of thing, and and it's all just gone gone a bit wrong. But you know, there's a lot of people worse off. So mm. yeah, I think she's enjoying the 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 non nagging from our house. To the whole well, it's thing. it's so every, yeah. I mean, you have to be you have to be nice to each other now, which is no bad thing. Yes, exactly, absolutely. Um, no, but the reason I was calling was. I'm out of complete disbelief, to be honest with you. So, mm. 10 o'clock this morning, uh, my mobile called, my mobile rang, and um, I picked it up, and it was from a very, very busy UK call centre. Right. Uh, not a foreign call centre, but a, a, an English call centre. I believe it was, well, it was a Newcastle number that came through. Right. Um, it was Vodafone um, calling me to tell me about their offers that they've got on broadband. Really? And I just, yeah, I just think it's ludicrous. Not only... You know, they could email me, 
But this is a call centre. It's like, it's like they've not got the memo. Right. They right, OK, you know, you, you have to work from home. They own a network. <laughs> they, they are the, the most enabled people to actually, you know, be able yeah. to work Yeah, you from think home. they could have their people if they're selling, if they're so busy selling things at the moment, which is also a bit bizarre. Um, yeah. Surely whoever is doing the selling could do, could do it from anywhere. Well, absolutely. You know, they've all got mobile phones and, you know, the network is Vodafone and it's Vodafone that's trying to sell to me. And, as you know, even if they couldn't, phone from home, they can email me. Yeah. I don't need to know, they, you know about their, their updated broadband packages. And I certainly don't want to hear it from it from a, a very, very noisy yeah. city call centre. Well, I can also tell you that I, I, I can recommend that you don't take a broadband package from from from, uh, from Vodafone because I did. And then uh, yeah. they, they got in touch with me one day to say, we're not going to be able to provide you broadband anymore because we're only now doing fibre broadband and your street doesn't have it. So cheerio. So I had to go and find somebody else yeah. to give it to me. It's crazy. It uh, is. It's absolutely crazy. But how they can get away with, you know, everything that's been taking place recently, but more so last night, and then sending all their staff to work in a call centre, it, it's beyond It is crazy. Me. It is absolutely. You're quite right to be outraged by that. Nicola, thanks very much indeed. Nicola in Northumberland. I mean, if you're one of these people who's being told to come to a call centre, but you're doing it against your will, I would be very interested to hear why. Uh, they're giving you that as a reason for coming into work when you really shouldn't have to be. We're still trying to get an answer out of Sadiq Khan, by the way, as to what he's going to do. Lots of people absolutely outraged at pictures that I put out this morning. Somebody called Nicola Smith put out a picture from the very, very busy tube that she was on, basically saying to Boris Johnson, can you please start policing who's getting on this particular train? Because it's standing room only. People are standing right next to each other, clearly breathing in and out uh, with each other's fumes coming all over themselves. And it's just ridiculous, absolutely unbelievable. Sadiq Khan, of course, previously has said uh, that you can't catch coronavirus on the tube. Well, I think you might find that that's not particularly scientific, uh, my Mr Mayor, and it's time that they did something about it. Welcome back to the classroom, because you might think that you're off school, but actually this is now your virtual classroom, because every day from this point on, at 12.30, we will be bringing you a little bit of education, uh, hopefully a little bit of entertainment, and just a little bit of information as well. Today, uh, we start our uh, lesson with a, a little knowledge about photosynthesis and how it works and what it's all about. And to help us with it, we're going to talk to Dr Simon Watt, evolutionary biologist and broadcaster. Simon, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Now, we can all sit around and pretend that we're in a virtual classroom. I don't know how you would do that. I don't know whether you'd have a blackboard or a whiteboard or whether you'd have sort of one of those overhead projectors or whether that's so old-fashioned now that I wouldn't even begin to, to tell you. But uh, oh, the no, reason... I, I love an overhead projector and there's nothing like good retro classroom work. <laughs> well, one of the reasons we're doing... We picked photosynthesis as the first subject was because we had a caller yesterday who's got some young children at home. Um, I think two, four and six, he said they were. Um, and obviously quite hard to keep their attention. And he said he's having real trouble explaining to the, the kids this whole idea of photosynthesis and how it works. So I'm going to just let you ramble on about exactly what it is and, and what it does do. Well, of course, one of the things is, as we are trying to talk about these things in details that might be needed for primary schools, secondary schools, and like more advanced studies, even, we have to think of different levels of detail. But if you're going to be at home looking at these things, probably the best thing is, Look out your window, look at a tree, ask the kids, what can you tell me about that? Get them to describe it, because then get down to the detail of some of these things. Right. Because if you look at a leaf, of course, what's the first thing that leaves out to you? It's green. And the reason it's green is because there's a pigment in it called chlorophyll. And chlorophyll has got this incredible capability of taking energy from the sun and taking that light energy and turning it into chemical energy. This is what allows plants to make their own food. Okay. So it's, it's a pretty 
but you know it's, it sounds pretty magical but of course it's it's science it's a terrific thing well it is um the reason it's green is because actually the green light is the color that it's not using so it's absorbing maybe kind of blues and reds some of those other pigments in there do similar kind of things and it's reflecting back the green so the reason why you see it being green is because that's the color of light that it's not using Okay. And what's it? What's it? What's a tree doing when it doesn't have any leaves on it? Well, it doesn't have any leaves. It's basically hibernating. So whenever you're seeing trees um, in wintertime, they're accepting that there's so much less sunlight during the day. Right. It's going to say, "All right, we're going to batten the hatches. We're not going to bother." Okay. We're just losing you a bit, Simon, in and out of the phone line. So let's try and get you on a slightly better phone line, and we can. Because I'm, I'm actually this. This could be so fascinating, right? Because. I don't know that much about trees. We were told yesterday by someone that actually the only part of the tree that is alive uh, is the bark. So we're going to ask Simon about that as well. But this is the thing that I love about uh, if you delve into an area which you didn't really think you were going to go and do, but you treat it like any other kind of journalistic enterprise and you imagine being at school asking questions of the teacher and finding out precisely what the teacher can tell you. Because the difference between the independent republic school of knowledge and the school that your children have been attending is that we are very libertarian here. We're not going to tell you off for talking. We're not going to tell you off for not paying attention. We're not going to end the show with an exam for you. We're just literally going to pour information into your ears and if you're watching us on YouTube through your eyes that you can use. That The next time somebody asks you about something like photosynthesis and about trees, you'll be full of information and it will be actually rather amusing to do. So we want to do this over the course of the next uh, several days, maybe in the next several weeks. Every single day at 12.30, we're going to get somebody on who can help us with learning about what the subject of the matter of the day is. We're having a bit of trouble with uh, the scientific uh, connection here, so uh, we do bear with me while we try and get Simon back. But tomorrow, I think what we're going to do is we're going to do the uh, the food business, and we're going to do maybe a little... I'm not sure if we can do a bit of cookery, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. Simon, I think we have you back. Yeah, well, I've, I've come into the garden kind of appropriately, so I can look at Excellent. these leaves. We might get better reception. Well, that's good, isn't it? Because I find out when I'm down in Sussex, the house inside the house is a terrible reception. Outside is much better. You were explaining what uh, trees do when they go into hibernation, basically, for the winter. So when do they know... Um, when it is that they can come out of hibernation? Does it de depend? Is it, is it time sensitive? Is it, is it uh, sort of temperature sensitive? Yeah, kind of temperature. So it's kind of like they've got a little chemical clock within them. And this clock is affected by things like temperature, sunlight. Um, it's effectively the same kind of thing which tells us even when to wake up and go to sleep. Right. We all have these circadian rhythms and so do the plants. Right. And do um, trees stop growing at any point? Because I've got a tree in my garden, right, which is growing so high because it's one of those very fast-growing type trees. It looks almost like... Um, it doesn't look like a tree, but it obviously is a tree, and it's now the tallest tree in the garden. Um, and it's... I don't know how to best to describe it. The, 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 it looks almost like bamboo, in a way. Yeah. And it's, it's very green leaves, um, sort of quite long, and the bark comes off the tree quite often um, through the course of the year and, and looks like... also looks kind of like bamboo-like. OK, well, it's possible, of course, that you've got an unhealthy tree, but it just sounds like one of the ones... Well, that is within its nature. Right. But what you're seeing there is that the first, the, when trees are born, you know, when they start growing, they come up from the seeds, their first job is to try and reach that light, the thing which is fundamental for them making their food. Right. So they shoot up as fast as they can. Trees are always aiming to go and reach for the sky as much as they can, so they grow up really, really fast vertically. And then when they're up high, 
then they start putting on a bit of a middle-aged spread, as it were. <laughs> yes. But do they, does it slow down? Because presumably they don't grow continuously for their entire life. Um, a lot of ones can. Now, it doesn't mean they're always continuously growing in the same kind of way. But mm. Think about how you can take cuttings off trees right. and replant them elsewhere. I'm sure you might have seen that thing where a tree can fall over, it looks like it's been killed, but then suddenly it's shooting... Uh, vertical spikes up through its bark and yes. elsewhere. Right. Now, somebody told us yesterday, I don't know if this is true, that the only part of a tree which is technically alive is the bark. Is that right? <laughs> well, no, Dick. I, I kind of see what they're going for, but alive is actually a trickier concept. And we could even explain, like, we're going to get into deep, weird philosophy there. I'm, I'm like, okay with that. Is, well, is a strawberry alive or dead when you eat it? Mm. If it was dead, it would be pretty much be rotting. Yes. You know? So it's kind of a bit of a mixture. Um, so the, the thing that they're probably referring to is that an awful lot of the tree is actually kind of empty. It's these vessels which it allows to transport water up to its leaves right. and up to the things which are doing the work from the roots. And it's also like got these other vessels which put sap down, basically. It's sending all the sugars it's making from the leaves mm. down to the rest of it. Okay. So it's kind of like saying maybe... It's a bit empty in the inside. Yeah, and I suppose. Really I, I mean, one of the way. things that was said was that if you, you know, if you if you if you take a piece of bark off the tree, it can die. Whereas if you pick, yes. if you take a leaf off the tree, it doesn't. That's that's very very true. You can kill trees by removing the bark. In fact, it's one of the ways used in a lot of like say Amazonian tribes if they're wanting to like kill a tree. If you really? don't have the the great technology for making you know metal work to make axes and stuff, right. they do what you call ring barking, which means pretty much they kind of their way into the tree a bit, they remove a whole strip of the bark of the outside. So they're taking this sort of ring of bark off it, so it's completely got this break. And that means that the sugars can't get from the one place to the other, and that means it dies. Right. And what about what's going on beneath the surface, as it were, you know, underneath where the roots are? Are they... How far do they go, generally speaking, compared to the... Is it like an iceberg? Well, again, it depends, actually, on the type of tree. So oh. you've got all sorts of plants adapted to different kind of environments. In some places, they have to have really wide ones, which are there primarily to make sure that they've got a nice solid base. So if a big, heavy wind comes along, they're not suddenly just swept out of the, right. out of the ground and tipped over. They also have to be there ready to grab water, say, when it melts. So if you look at some of the conifers and the things which live in really icy conditions, they have to have these wide, wide roots because they're just waiting for the water on top of them mm. to form snow and ice to melt, and then they'll take full advantage of it. Right. If you go to the Amazon even, say, a lot of the plants don't have that deep roots because actually the majority of the soil is kind of at the surface. There's so much energy being used and so much life in places like the Amazon and some of the tropics that actually the majority of the chemicals, the majority of the organic chemicals are in the living things. So they have to be able to grab the energy from stuff like fallen yeah. leaves or dead animals and dead plants as fast as they can. Right. And then you can go to other places where you get these enormous tap roots. So roots that go really, really, really super deep to try and take advantage of maybe groundwater, that kind of thing. Yeah, because I've seen um, lately, particularly since all the, the flooding that took place, there's lots of parts of, of sort of southeast England which are basically still underwater, lots of, le you know, sort of f fields, farmers' fields which are underwater, and the trees are just sitting in what you might say is a couple of feet of water. Is that yeah. going to kill them, or are they OK with that? It, it can do in some cases, because the other thing is what else is living in that water? If you can effectively sort of set up a amount of rot, like if there's bacteria and fungi and things particular that can now live in those places they couldn't have otherwise, then it might kill it. Similarly, right. actually, lots and lots of trees have got really 
amazing relationships with fungi. We're actually starting to understand how um, a lot of these fungi, like mushrooms and toadstools and things, are kind of pivotal to the life of so many of these trees right. and the other way around as well. They're utterly dependent on each other because they can make all sorts of weird chemicals that one and the other, another need. Right. This is actually the reason why there's a couple of plants and things out there which we just can't farm. And it's because we don't understand the relationship that there is yet between those fungi and those trees. Okay. And, and finally, since we're in the midst of a pandemic, um, when there's something like Dutch elm disease or that disease that killed a lot of the ash trees some years ago, yes. how, does that, how does that spread between the trees? Well, for a lot of those ones, like if, I, remember, I, I hope I'm right in this with Dutch elm. I, I'm not gonna, this might not be the case for that specific one, but for a lot of them, and I think it too, it's actually down to beetles. Really? Because beetles are ancient, ancient farmers. Mm. So beetles and ants and lots of other insects developed farming long, long before we did. And what they farm is fungi. So the tree will have these amazing chemicals that it uses to poison beetles. It's kind of got its own insecticide. So a lot of these things can't eat the tree directly. But what they can do is make these kind of little gardens. They can take out these little um, alleyways underneath the bark or into the tree's flesh and plant fungi there. Right. And then the fungi will grow. They're able to deal with these toxic chemicals and then the beetles will eat these fungi. So it's kind of a complicated one in many of these cases. What is it is a beetle will get in, the beetle brings a fungus, and it's the fungus that kills the tree. OK. Well, I'll tell you what, Dr Simon, what I thought that was fantastic. I thought it was very interesting, and I was, frankly, riveted by all of it. So I'm hoping <laughs> that everybody else who was listening to that uh, will say the same, because, I, you know, there's a lot of that stuff people don't know. Well, yeah, because this is one of the sort of, I think it's a gift of the natural world, is that it's kind of infinite complexity. Like, mm. the more you drill into it, the more interesting questions there are. Right. Um, and the truth is also there's a whole ton of stuff we still don't know. It's the reason why something, you know, trees that we've been cultivating for years and plants that we've been eating for, for centuries still have mysteries within them that we don't understand. Yeah, marvellous. Fantastic. Dr Simon Watt, thank you very much indeed. Evolutionary biologist. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.